Hello, James. Hello, Vincent. How are you both today? Hello, Clarice. I am good. How are you? <laughs> Russell, Oel Ngati Kamiai. James, Oel Ngati Kamiai. John Gotti? Tick nach. Now we're going to devolve into gibberish, so we should probably yeah. switch back to language other people can hear, can understand, because <laughs> I don't think podcasts come with subtitles. Not currently. That's not really how the medium works. But, you know, um, we could be pioneers. We could pioneer the way forward. and You get like a pamphlet of subtitles as you listen to us. It's almost like reading a book. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, all. It's Invasion of the Potty People, and we've made it to the end of 2021. Hooray! Hooray! And we're still exactly where we were in terms of the chaos of the real world. But there's been some films, haven't there, guys? That's true. Quite a lot. I mean, it's like there's been a year's worth of films that it's worth talking about in detail. And some pretty big releases actually made it out this year. In fact, we have all seen a big release in Spider-Man, and we won't have any spoilers here because there'll be some people who won't have seen it, but yeah, it's a lot of a film. Hmm. It's a a lawful lot of film, and um, and you you want to find your way home afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) It's a web-slinging good time. That too. um, Will it make it into our top tens? So as this is our last episode of the year, not ever, and then we'll come back, don't worry, we'll never, you can't kill us yet. <laughs> um, we've all got our own top tens that will collate into a potty people top ten of the year. And before that point, we kind of flipped things this time. So we're going to start with some recommend- recommendations of you, something old, something new and something not a movie. And then at the end, we're going to be optimistic and pick our most anticipated film each of next year. Because, you know, touch wood, films will still keep coming out, even as everything is happening. Uh, so first up, let's start with something old. And I was going to, it's my turn to pick something old. And I was going to pick a Christmas film, but I thought we've all watched a lot of Christmas films. So I'll find something else equally fun. And one of the great Christmas films is Gremlins, directed by none other than Joe Dante. And so... As I do dearly love Joe Dante. The guy is fabulous. So many of his films are wonderful. The Howling's just got a re-release on 4K, I believe. He's done some amazing films. And one of them is Matinee, which I watched the first time this year. It came out in 1993. It's on Arrow, and it is wonderful. It's about a small-time film promoter who is releasing a atomic monster film on the backdrop of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So he's kind of, you know, a shuckster who's uh, using that to help promote his film and create an atmosphere. And it is terrific good fun. It's one of those films about films that's actually, you know, understands there are a lot of crap films out there. It's not trying to tell us that the film that's being released is amazing. It's just about the love of making films. And it has one of my favorite performances from John Goodman. The beloved John Goodman. So yeah, so my something old is Matinee. It's on Arrow. It is so worth your time. In fact, a lot of Arrow is worth your time. There's a lot of odd films on there that are just great fun. And yeah, treat yourself over the next couple of months to an Arrow subscription and you can watch a lot of great films. James, what's our something new? 
Well, for us, something new, I've decided to go for the new film from Pablo Lorraine. It's Spencer. Now, I know what you're thinking. You, the Princess Diana film? How's this horror genre? What you want? Stay with me. Now, the opening titles describe this as a fable from a true tragedy. And what Lorraine and screenwriter Stephen Knight have crafted is a fictionalised account of Diana's ending marriage to Charles, but they've done it in the guise of a psychological horror film. And Kristen Stewart is absolutely phenomenal in playing the People's Princess, because you see her, she's overwhelmed with having her agency and her privacy all stripped away just so she can be used as currency for the tabloids. And while in the middle of this, she's suffering from bulimia, she's suffocating in the grasp of the royal family, and she's experiencing visions of Anne Boleyn, which captures how fragile her mental health is at this time. And it is a phenomenal film. And the only thing I'd say which rises above Stewart's performance is Johnny Greenwood's stunning score. But the quietly menacing performance by Timothy Spall does give it, give it a got darn good try. And I think at just under two hours, this is one of the better films of the year. It's a surely to be an awards favourite, especially for Stuart. It's just missed out on my top 10 of the year. I'll spoil that for you right now. But that's my recommendation. And I would definitely recommend seeing it when it comes to digital this month. So, Vincent, I believe you have something not a movie for us to be recommending. Indeed, I do. I do indeed. Um, I uh, will recommend, as we quite often do on this podcast, the competition, as I'm going to recommend another podcast that talks about movies, namely Halloween, The Definitive Companion. Now, I appreciate it might seem a bit late in the year to be talking about Halloween. We're in December now. We're all ready for Christmas and New Year. But, you know, we're genre nerds with particular love for horror, any night can be Halloween. And if you want to learn about the Halloween franchise and hear some very in-depth discussions about it, then you certainly could do a lot worse than Halloween, The Definitive Companion. This is made by RKG, who make podcasts and videos where they talk about the things they love, including, as they say repeatedly, manifestations of pure evil. There are, to date, 12 episodes covering John Carpenter's Halloween from in 1978 to Halloween Kills of 2021. Um, and hopefully they'll come back with another episode next year um, for Halloween Ends. It's very insightful. It's super engaging. It's very funny. Um, and I especially like that they offer some original perspectives. They rank the masks. Um, the masks that Michael Myers wears in each film. So what's the best mask? This one and so on. Um, They also rate the kills. What's the best kill and so on. And identify the dumbest decisions. Slasher movies like Halloween are filled with people doing the sort of thing that make you go, don't do that, you idiot. And they can identify which will prompt the loudest of those cries. And there are many references to pure evil. So it's excellent um, podcast for anyone um, who loves the Halloween franchise or indeed anyone who enjoys listening to people blathering about movies. And I'm guessing our listeners quite enjoy that too, because, hey, here we are. Well, I've just subscribed to that. So thank you very much for that recommendation. 
you're welcome. Um, I'll be checking out, um, I hope to check out Spencer. I haven't seen it yet, but I certainly do like the look of it. And I remember seeing Matinee many years ago and absolutely loving it. So um, yeah, I'm, I'll uh, take, a, uh, I plan to at least do a trial on Arrow and I will check it out on there again. I always remember it, Mant, part man, part ant. <laughs> what do you call that thing? Bill. <laughs> yeah, Spencer's definitely on my list of films to check out. Uh, yeah. And I quite like The Crown, so I quite like that whole kind of toxicity in drama around the royals. And there's a lot of that. So, yeah, I and uh, Jackie, his last film was uh, also kind of a horror film. He kind of does just these like really arty horror films that are very mm. scary and also make you sympathize for people otherwise wouldn't sympathize for. So, yeah. And also, Indeed. I love the Halloween franchise for all of its ills. Having watched all of them now. Yeah, I love that for what it is. Yes, the atomic bomb is terrible. But more terrible still are the effects of atomic mutation. Hello, I'm Lawrence Woolsey. And I want to warn you about something that could happen. Well then, gentlemen, I believe it may be time to cast our eyes back over the previous 12 months. Now, dear listeners, the way we have done this is that each of us have our own top 10 movies of 2021 and we're going to go through them all in ascending order so first James will give his number 10 then Russell will then I will Um, but if we have an overlap then we will wait until the it comes up in um, somebody else's list so if something that so here's a here's a preview Um, James's number 10 is also Russell's number six. So we won't talk about that one straight away. We'll work our way up. Um, and then at the end of it, even more exciting, um, I, have, I have an aggregate, which means we can actually reveal the Poddy People's collective top 10 films of 2021. I know, does it get more exciting? So to start things off, James, tell us your number 10, please. Well, my number 10, as has been hinted at, is Palm Springs. Indeed, which we will come to later on. Soon, yeah. Yes. Russell, what Um, is your number 10? My number 10 is the the winner of the best film at this year's Oscars. It's Nomadland. Now, does anyone else have Nomadland on their list? Yes, I do. So we'll move on. Of a pin in that. My number 10 is No Time to Die. Why would I betray you? We all have our secrets. We just didn't get to yours yet. Which is not on anyone else's list, best I can tell. So I will just briefly say that... I, that No Time to Die was one of the highest profile um, casualties of, uh, of COVID in terms of film releases, pushed back, pushed back, pushed back, finally released in October. Yeah, it was October um, of this year. And I think it was worth the wait. Um, it has many firsts for a Bond film. Um, 
know, two in particular, which I think um, had many people just like, wait, what? <laughs> During the viewing of it. And I would summarize it as a sleek, rambunctious, knowing, yet emotional and genuinely surprising thrill ride of legacy, memory, secrets, revenge and family. And while James Bond will return, as the uh, credits make clear, um, it's a very fitting send off for Daniel Craig's James Bond. So my number 10, No Time to Die. Don't know if either of you have views on it. A damn fine film. And I think it was a wonderful way for Daniel Craig to bow out of his, this series, which honestly, I never cared about until Daniel Craig came in. So Craig was essentially my bond. And it, I got quite emotional at seeing this last film in his series. And I do agree about the very surprising first. I mean, when Bond crossed over with Indiana Jones by way of the Crystal Skull aliens, mind blowing. I know. And as for the point when, the, when he, enc he encountered the Atlanteans, I was like, whoa. That I did not see coming. Mm. <laughs> Russell, what about you? Uh, yeah, I, I had a lot of fun with uh, No Time to Die. I think it's a fabulous one song for Craig. Um, yeah, I, and impressive that it's probably the first time I've watched Bond where there is a cohesive story across five films as opposed to uh, the more standalone nature of Bond. Um, and the action was great. I really liked the Norway bit. I really liked the bit in the forest in Norway. It was really great fun. Uh, it's slightly too long for me, but that's a critique of most films that I have. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's it's a worthy, uh, worthy film to to go off and watch. Thank you. Okay, so that's um, so so those are our number tens to recap. Um, that's James has Palm Springs. Russell has Nomadland. Vincent, No Time to Die. So James, how about your number nine? My number nine is a documentary I watched at BFI Flare called Cured. Have, have any of you seen this? I confess I have not. not. Ooh, then allow me to explain. If you were gay in those days, you were diagnosed as suffering from a mental disorder. Like so many people in my generation, I went to psychoanalysis to be cured. It's an engrossing documentary which charts the gay liberation movement in their fight to, at a time when homosexuality was listed as a sickness, it's a powerful retelling of history in their fight to not have their sexuality listed as a sickness. It's, and it's told from the people who were there, whether they spoke out against the homophobia or if they were silenced out of fear of being ostracized. And one of the most, most powerful stories told is about this man called Dr. John Fryer, who he wants to speak at a key conference about the effects homophobia has had on even psychiatrists. And he was previously fired for his sexuality and he doesn't want to risk this current job. So he agrees to speak out under the condition, but he has some conditions. He's got to attend in a disguise. He's got to use a pseudonym. He's got to have his voice modified. So, and it's all this which led this doctor to feel comfortable enough to speak on the injustices he faced. And it's such an affecting moment from somebody whose real name we never know because history has never recorded that because he was that frightened out of his past experiences. I think it's important and riveting stuff. 
Last I checked, it was available in the documentary section of Now TV, and I'd really recommend Cured. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that is a that is a stirring recommendation. I, uh, I always uh, when I hear about documentaries of this thing, I always think that's something I should see. And if there's it, but if there's anything that's likely to kind of put me off because I think I'm going to find it too upsetting or depressing, mm. it that's the sort of thing it tends to be. Which, if anything, tells me all the more I should see it because you know these things matter. Mm. Are you sold on uh, cured, Russell? I am. It's going on my watch list. It's going to be one of those films I'll seek out. Um, it kind of. So one of my t- favorite TV shows of this year is It's a Sin, oh, which God, yeah. it kind of covers Ooh, yeah. uh, similar grounds um, in wrenchingly sad ways. So yeah, so I'm definitely going to, you know, when I have to be in the mood, it sounds like I've got to be in the right mood for Cured. It doesn't, it, yeah, it's got to be the right time of day and yeah, probably the right disposition, but it sounds pretty impressive. Mm. All right, Russell, uh, tell us about your number nine, which I think is very interesting. So my number nine is Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Do any of you fellas have that in your top ten? I do not. I do not. Fabulous. Throughout my life, the ten rings gave our family power. If you want them to be yours one day, you have to show me you are strong enough to carry them. So uh, this almost slot was almost taken up by Zack Snyder's Justice League, but I've decided that as, as much as I was in, impressed by that and as much as it surprised me, I don't think it wholly works for me as a film enough for me to put it here. The superhero film that I've enjoyed the most this year is Shang-Chi. And it has been a bit of a bumper year with the movies coming out and TV We've kind of got Marvel back and there's been some DC stuff in the mix, but this has been the one that I've most enjoyed. I I wasn't sold by the marketing. I didn't watch it at the cinema. I watched it when I came to Disney Plus and I kind of kicked myself for not watching it in the cinema because I found this a really enjoyable, pretty thrilling uh, origin story for a superhero. And it was a lot of fun. The bus sequence is terrific. There's a bus sequence about... 20, 25 minutes in this fight in this sequence in, in this bus when we first see what Shang-Chi can do. And it's just terrific fun. Uh yeah, I enjoyed this and I enjoyed it probably more because it's not trying to link too much into Marvel's wider universe. There is stuff in there, and there's a great cameo from Benedict Wong and stuff like that. But up until like one of the end credit scenes, it doesn't try and link too hard back into it and it creates its own mythology which i found much more enjoyable than some other marvel entries this year so this is my number nine i am actually quite desperate to go off and watch it again because i just yeah i had a blast with shang chi i thought it was great fun and i'm very excited they've just announced there's going to be a sequel because yeah i try and get away from marvel cinematic universe i try and be like no no i'm done with the mcu and then there's stuff like this and loki and i'm currently watching hawkeye and kind of enjoying its kind of uh more grounded, smaller scale fun. So yeah, I've been drawn back into the MCU. And of course, as I watched Spider-Man last night, I'm sure I'm going to watch Doctor Strange and other entries. But yeah, of the comic book movies this year and the comic book shows this year, Shang-Chi is a pretty darn good uh, entry in that universe. Just when you thought you were out, they pull you back in. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That's exactly how I felt. And I felt that at the end of Loki when... 
it revealed who the eventual big bad of this generation of Marvel is going to be. I was like, ah, you've suckered me in. Yeah, I like it when Marvel now go a bit um, mystical or cosmic or just kind of aren't so rigidly grounded to fighting an evil Russian who's creating, you know, super spies. That's kind of boring to me now. (laughs) (laughs) It is. I very much enjoyed Shang-Chi as well. Um, it didn't make it into my top 10, but I thought it was a great martial arts um, adventure. Yes, the puns continue. <laughs> James, what, did you see it and uh, did, uh, did you like it? Yes, I saw it and I did rather enjoy it. It's a lot. I think what these Marvel films do really well is introduce brand new characters who the less comic savvy fans are may not be familiar with. And do them in a way which feels so welcoming and open that anyone can enjoy. And I think they really achieved that with Shang-Chi and it helps that the callbacks to previous Marvel films weren't so all encompassing and too much set up. It was like a cameo from a character who we thought we'd seen the last of like eight years ago or something or reference to a, an organization that was mentioned back in Iron Man. It's stuff you get more out of if you're familiar with the films, but it's not a necessity to un- to understand them. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Hmm. Agreed, yeah. And I certainly look forward to what comes next. Maybe it'll be uh, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Extra Ring. Who knows? <laughs> um, okay, so, let, um, so that was uh, your number nine. My number nine is a film that has been mentioned once already but i don't but is not going to be mentioned again so we can now discuss number nine which for me my number nine and russell's number 10 nomadland you are one of those lucky people that can travel anywhere yes ma'am and they sometimes call you nomads this year's Best Picture winner, directed by Chloe Zhao and starring the aforementioned uh, front. Uh, well, we were talking about this earlier before we started recording, Francis McDormand. Um, I thought Nomadland was everything that I sort of anticipated it would be. Um, you see you see something win Best Picture and then you think, OK, I'll give this a go. Is it really going to live up to the hype? And for me, absolutely, it did. Um, Nomadland is an achingly beautiful, bittersweet yet tender, stark yet hopeful and profoundly moving masterpiece of solitude and community, people forgotten yet cherished and a way of life unique and strange yet utterly relatable. Uh, Russell, what do you think of it? Oh, I agree. It's it's in my top 10 and the Oscars keep surprising me because they keep picking actual good films to win best picture. It's almost like the experience of green book winning kind of shook things up so much that we now get really interesting films winning best picture that seem to be really bold statements about the world around us. I, I, I think Nomadland is beautiful and heartbreaking and has so much about what America is right now without sort of you know, overworking the point. I think Frances McDormand is as good as Frances McDormand always is, which is that she's probably one of the great performers of her generation or any generation, really. Um, yeah, no, I, I was I'm quite surprised, surprised about how much I was into this. 
I watched it as a double with Minari, which <laughs> um, was really quite a, a, a heavy double because they're both quite sad in their own way. Um, but yeah, no, I think Nomadland is is a masterpiece. Yeah. James, you didn't have um, uh, <clears throat> Nomadland in your top 10, but uh, are you a fan? I actually have not seen it. Oh, okay. I have no excuse. I have Disney <laughs> Plus, but for some reason, I guess I just want to watch shitty films about killer puppets rather than Oscar winners. <laughs> Go figure, I guess. Eh. Again, it's probably like Cured. It helps if you're in the right mood for it. My only True. regret with Nomadland is I didn't see it in the cinema because I imagine with those vistas, it would have been something breathtaking. I did see um, Eternals not long ago, um, mm. back to Marvel, but also Chloe Zhao. And I noticed there's a same sort of visual balance um, in the frame. And I think to see that on the big screen. So if it happens to, you know, reappear um, um, in cinema, I think I'll make the effort to go see it. So that's our um, number nines. Moving on to number eight, James. I have a feeling you guys will probably have my number eight higher up in your list. It's Denny Villeneuve's du- June. That yes. is definitely on the other <laughs> list. That is actually the first film we'll talk about that appears on all three of our lists, though Ooh. at different points. Mm. So we will come back to Dune. Um, <clears throat> Russell, your number eight, please. Uh, I also think my number eight is on at least one other person's, if not all of our lists, and it's Promising Young Woman. You are correct. Definitely. <laughs> uh, Promising Young Woman is also on all of our lists, so we'll talk about it a little later. And my number eight is not on anyone else's list, but we have already mentioned it because my number eight is Spider-Man No Way Home. Ever since I got bit by that spider... I've only had one week where my life has felt normal. That was when you found out. Uh, An exhilarating yet heartfelt thrill ride through choices, identities, redemption, great power and great responsibility. Funny that. That strikes an impressive balance between innovation and homage, action, character and emotion. Now, Here's the key thing about, I can say many things about Spider-Man Far From Home, but here's what I'm going to say about it. I am a stickler for cinema etiquette. Um, you're in the cinema, you turn off your phone, you shut the fuck up, okay? People on their phone, people talking, and I will get cross. Now, there are a couple of points during Spider-Man No Way Home when I did see some dickhead off to my left who did have his phone out and I just you know bit my tongue and left it at that and I heard some people muttering behind me and I gave them a dirty look however there were a couple of points in the movie and Russell and James you will know what I mean when the auditorium burst into applause it people were shrieking whooping cheering clapping and I was one of them I, <laughs> I broke my own rules. I <laughs> breached the Wittertainment Code of Conduct. And I'm not sorry because everything, there's always got to be an exception. And I think what was um, really great about that is it felt like such a wonderful communal experience. We all missed the cinema um, during lockdown. And while, you know, there, there, there is certain 
um, trepidation by going into a crowded cinema, which this was. Um, no Time to Die and Spider-Man No Way Home are the only f- films I've been in this year where they were actually quite full. But that response, that immense outpouring of love and affection and delight, um, and the fact that I think the film judged it just right in how to treat that aspect, how to engage with that kind of fan appreciation worked so well. So um, I take my hat off um, to uh, Marvel and to uh, John Watts, the director, who just, you know, I think they delivered something really quite special. I mean, everything that um, Russell said about Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, I think is um, true of Spider-Man No Way Home, while also incorporating so much fan engagement not fan service but fan engagement and rewarding fans giving us something that was i think genuinely special and i will say there were a couple of points in no way home that had me tearing up so yeah um i only saw a couple of days ago but it's gone into my um films of the year at number eight um so you've both seen it did you did the did the cinemas that you were in have similar responses Mine had similar, sure. It started off interestingly when the Sonic the Hedgehog 2 trailer came up (laughs) and at the first image, one guy just goes, yes! So that started things off. And then when the film started, the guy, I was sat in the front row because that was all that was left. Like the very front of the cinema. Oh, same. That's where I always sit. (laughs) Mm. I'm not used to it because my neck usually hurts from sitting there, but... Um, it was a packed cinema and the guy next to me was recording the film and yeah and an employee came up behind us and said and had a stern word with him and so that shit got shut down thankfully and then it was the same there was electric tension in the air that people were absolutely loving it in the cinemas and Yes, I know exactly the points you mean. And people were outright clapping and cheering at that point. And it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. This is the UK. We're British. (laughs) We're usually reserved. And you'll probably get a laugh out of us or an applause at the end. In the film like that, I haven't experienced anything like it outside of Fright Fest. It was unbelievable. And you know what? This feels like the perfect kind of film to get people back in the cinemas and to really help boost it uh, considering what the past year or two has been like. And I'm all for it because I think this is a damn good film. It's, I'd say it's the best of the Tom Holland's trilogy and it does really well building upon what came before it. And I think with the, while the action scenes are great, the best moments for me are just, characters talking and bonding and just bearing their souls and i'm i really like this film i'm really excited for where spider-man's going to go next and the post-credit scenes have me rather interested as what the future holds and i just hope there's this kind of joy for when into the spider-verse 2 comes out really which i think we'll be coming back to Mm. As a little tease for you folks. Uh, <laughs> Russell, what was your um, viewing experience like of Spider-Man No Way Home? 
so there were two moments in particular, one quite early on and one, I can't really say when it was, but yeah, you'll know, you'll know the moment <laughs> when there were it was an audible gasp. Uh, the person next to me was uh, crying for about 30 minutes at the end. And I was worried she was going to be dehydrated because of the amount of uh, crying she was doing. And uh, she was occasionally audible with her kind of, not shock, sadness. I don't know. Sobs. Yeah, I, I, I think it's um, not dissimilar to No Time to Die in what it is doing in how it's treating a character that's had several iterations in cinema um, and I was impressed with it. I was impressed with how it marshaled kind of an audience's awareness and fondness for a particular character to use that to its advantage to do interesting things. Uh, yeah, you can't talk too much about this film without going to spoilers, but I'll say that uh, I thought it was good enough and I had some really great moments of it. I think the first half is a bit messier than the second. I think it kind of finds itself in its second half and becomes a really great film. Yeah, that, that's why I put Shang-Chi above it because I thought Shang-Chi was uh, better constructed in its way, I think, maybe. I don't know. But facing all these films, one against the other, it's a really great uh, comic book movie. It's a lot better than some other Marvel films of late. And it is interesting enough and makes me want a sequel to something that I didn't think I'd want a sequel to. So, you know, yeah, a yeah. worthy inclusion. Excellent. Okay, great. Now then, moving on to number seven. Now, this is interesting. Um, so, uh, <laughs> James, tell us your number seven, please. My number seven is Another Round. Anyone Russell? else have it? Russell, My number you... seven is Another yeah. Round. <laughs> I have not actually seen another round, which is very bad of me. So please, gentlemen, let's have James, a round. You may talk about another round. What a life, what a night, what a beautiful, beautiful ride. Don't know where I'm in five, but I'm young and alive. Fuck what they are saying, what a life. Well, firstly... It's Mads Mikkelsen. Secondly, um, I think what Thomas Vinterberg has de delivered is a compelling tale about these 40-something men who are facing a midlife crisis and their teaching jobs just can't fill that hole. So they're struggling how to deal with their lives haven't turned out the way they've imagined. So they decide to conduct a hypothesis to see what would happen if they constantly stay drunk. And what happens is very humorous, very touching, and a pretty even-handed depiction of alcohol. It's You see the jo uplifting joys, you see the devastating lows. It's a wonderfully, wonderful film. It's got me pretty emotional in places, but in all honesty, you'll come away just in awe of Mads Mikkelsen's dance moves and for good reason he's fucking terrific doing them and oh I just love this film I'm so glad it won an Oscar but Mads really should have been best actor nominated um Russell how about you oh yeah this film is just is wonderful so I caught it uh 
about a year and a half ago, maybe a year and three months at the London Film Festival in 2020, which was all online. And this was one of their films. And uh, uh, yeah, I it made me cry. It's one of two films that I watched that festival that made me cry. It's funny and heartbreaking and it moves from devastation to bliss in its final moments in a way that is so skillful. Uh, yeah, it spoke to me more than most films speak to me. And yeah, Mads is phenomenal in this. And uh, I think it is a great tragedy. Well, not a great tragedy. I think it's really sad that he just doesn't seem to have as huge career as he deserves in Hollywood. Uh, he's probably going to make me go and watch a Fantastic Beast movie, which I'd rather not do, but a love for him will do that. But Another Round is a profoundly moving piece that's, yeah, is, is, is quite incredible. And it's on now. So if you want to go off and watch it, you can watch it on now. Oh, there we go. Yes, maybe it's something I should watch now. But I'm talking to you guys. Um, <laughs> yeah, do you find that you've, um, when you come across an actor like Mars Mikkelsen, um, whose previous work is in non-English language material, and then you see him in something like, I think most of us probably first saw him in Casino Royale, um, but then you want to look at his other stuff, the material he has done outside of the English-speaking world, um, I haven't, he did a previous film, I think, with Thomas Vinterberg, The Hunt. Um, but a film of, um, that I've, I remember seeing him in is A Royal Affair, which is absolutely stunning. Um, also, I, um, one of the earliest films for Alicia Vikander. Um, so, yeah, if you guys, I, um, I certainly will check out another round at, at last. Um, but if you guys want more Mars, and I think we all want more Mars in our Absolutely. lives. And um, yeah, check out A Royal Affair. That's a really great film from 2012, I think. Uh, Danish, again. Yeah. Uh, the Hunt, by the way, is brilliant. It's, it's oh, yeah. a difficult watch, but a brilliant watch. And, and you can see why they work together, the director and the actor, because they bring out the best of each other. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah A Royal Affair is, is on the list. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mads is Mads is wonderful. Love mm-hmm. Mads, great man. We're, we're mad for Mads. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want one more Mads recommendation, Men in Chicken is a supremely strange film. Mads is he's not the villain or the leading. Well, he is leading man, but not the typical leading man you expect from him. It's a weird performance in a weird film, and it is very good. It's from the director of Riders of Justice, actually. So it, I, that's which is also good. I watched that the other day, and that was oh, good. Yeah. Um, that's good. Mads is the person I think who they should have cast for Doctor Strange. By the way, to link it back to Spider Man, yeah. I think Mads should have been Doctor Strange. I think he has the rather idea. rather than the villain in that film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, rather than a, a villain. Yeah, I tell you what, it's such a shame that um, we had Mars Mikkelsen play a Marvel villain already because he would be perfect as Victor Von Doom. <laughs> yes. Um, but uh, hey, oh, um, I did. Although you know, I, I did, it did occur to me the other day that um, Kang So Hong, um, the uh, lead actor from um, Parasite, he would make an interesting the, the Doctor Doom if you wanted to mix up races and so on. Mm. Speaking of, and this that leads me on. Speaking of um, ideas of race, my number seven is only say it once, Candyman. This is where it all began. The story of Candyman. Local character, he walk around handing out candy to the neighborhood kids. One day, 
A couple of kids get razor blades in their candy. Police come around. That's when I saw the true face of fear. An enthralling, savage, insightful and terrifying treatise on race, class, stratification, myth, voices, fear and the power of stories. Now, I think we may have spoken about that film earlier in the year after it just came out. Um, I remember I saw it just after Fright Fest um, when I saw something like, thanks to that, I saw 20 horror films in the space of a week. <laughs> um, and this was, uh, uh, this was one of, the le- uh, one of the last ones. Um, yeah, it was something that, um, I think uh, Candyman is a movie that took the concerns of um, the 1992 original, which is still a classic in its own right, and really updated them and made them stronger and, um, you know, really explored the way these, uh, the importance of stories and the importance of recollections um, are in, interwoven um, with um, ideas of um, gentrification and changes in class and race. Um, yeah, plus at the same time, it was also bloody terrifying. <laughs> um, it did the uh, thing of... Um, what I've, what's been described as frame analysis horror, where you're looking at the frame and something is wrong and you are looking around that big screen saying, where is it? Where's the thing? That should be? Oh, fuck, there it is. I had another fun, a similar um, wacky experience in the cinema when I saw Candyman because after in the movie, weird stuff had started happening. There was a point when I glanced over to my left and one of the cinema ushers had stepped into the auditorium and there was this just this figure standing off to the side. And I called out the corner. I went, what the fuck is that? Oh, it's the, one of the guys. It's fine. And I thanked him at the end as I was leaving. He said, thank you for adding to the experience by making me think, by making me think there was someone standing over in the corner. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So my number seven, Candyman, I believe both of you guys saw it and are also fans. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's a really great horror. I want to watch it again because... I kind of loved the first two acts and liked the third act. I kind of want to watch it all again so it can coalesce better inside me. But it has one of the scariest moments of a film this year, which is is the man coming out of the wall. Hmm. And it's it's yeah, a nightmarish image. You'll be a great, a great entry in a franchise that deserves more entries. So let's hope for a sequel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's certainly the best Candyman film to come out since um, since '92, but low bar in all honesty. But it genuinely is a magnificent um, follow up. With and I think Nia da Costa did a really great um, modern update on already a masterful film. And I'm really interested to see what she does with the Marvels next. Um, who knows? Maybe there'll be some frame analysis horror while Brie Larson is shooting space aliens. Hmm. Could be. Could be. There's a lot of scary space aliens out there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, some of them, and they don't all just want to grab stones and snap their fingers. Um, OK, so moving on to our number six now. Uh, James, tell us your number six. My number six. Ah. Uh, went wee 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 all the way home it's pig and it continued to go wee 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 into russell's top 10 so Mm, we will come back to pig but russell tell us about your number six 
which also happens to be James's number 10. Mm. My number six is Palm Springs. It's going to be a beautiful wedding. Here you are, standing on the precipice of something so much bigger than anyone here. But always remember, you are not alone. I don't think that we met. I'm Sarah. Niles. Hi. Hi. So Palm Springs is a film that I've been excited about for a, about a year and a half. It came, I think it premiered at Sundance about a year and a half ago or two years ago now. And yeah, it, it's just a wonderful take on the Groundhog Day formula. It's about a couple who are stuck in an t- infinite time loop, but it does it in a way that's just so fresh and inventive for a film that's you know sort of standing on the shoulders of another great film. Uh, Andy Samberg is fantastic in it. Christina Milioto is also great fun in it. J.K. Simmons has a wonderful supporting turn. It's funny and kind of profound. And it hit me in a way because I watched it when we were in one of the many lockdown situations that we found ourselves in. And so something about an infinite time loop during a lockdown just kind of speaks more than it otherwise should. But yeah, this is, it's a lot of fun. I've watched it twice this year. I kind of want to watch it for a third time because it just is both comforting and moving in equal measures. So yeah, I love Palm Springs. It was for a while higher, but I saw a film that we'll get to that just push out my top five. Yeah, I. it's wonderful that it took it a year for Palm Springs to come to UK and it was damn well worth the wait and it's an utter blast which lives up to the hype because it takes as Russell said it takes a premise that should feel old hat but utilizes it in such an engaging manner and it's thanks and it's in part thanks to just how sheerly hilarious it is and the sublime performances you've got on show particularly J.K. Simmons as just one person you do not want to be stuck in a time loop with because oh dear (laughs) but it is just such a wonderful um wonderful little film and i believe it's a directorial debut which i can't wait to see what the director has next up his sleeve Mm. i'm yet to see uh, palm springs but um as is so often the case with these it's on the list. <laughs> and now, it's on Amazon Prime. So indeed, you can go off yeah. and watch on Amazon Prime. I have no excuse. <laughs> but then none of us have excuses, do we? For not seeing the things <laughs> that we could have seen. Now, I'm going to mix things up slightly um, here because I'm going to, in terms of jumping the order slightly, um, because my number six is also, Jay, uh, is also Russell's. Number five. So we shall go from my six to Russell's not five and thence to James's five, which we will then come back to. And then actually to James's five. So my number six is The Green Knight. Yeah. And it's my number five. So, Vincent, do you want to go first? And then I will tag on. Oh, my Rus- Russell, please. Oh, you, you well, of off. course. <laughs> um, you chop my head off first. <laughs> Friends, 
brothers and sisters. Who can regale me and my queen with some myth? Uh, so the Green Knight is another one of those films that kind of uh, has been hyped and teased for about a year and a half before its release and had a shunted around release. Uh, but what a film it is. It's a spectacular medieval epic. It's the kind of film that my dad would have showed me on a Sunday afternoon, has sweeping vistas and mythology and folklore wrapped up in it. And it's utterly compelling wonderfully ambitious it it looks phenomenal has dev patel giving one of his best performances and i love dev patel his uh david copperfield was really really something special and here he is just pure star status he deserves to be as big an actor as he can be uh alicia facundas in it joel edgerton barry Keoghan. Kogan, Kogan, Barry Kogan is in it. And oh, there's just so much that I loved about this film. And it's not the film that I thought it was going to be. It's not, it's epic in its construction and in its themes. But as a story, it's much smaller in, in itself. It's about a man who must, a year after he beheads a giant green knight's head, travel to have the same thing done to him and that's all it is and that's what the story is and there's other stuff in there but it feels quite simple and small but it does give room for a talking scene stealing fox so yeah the green knight is uh everything that i wanted it to be and more i love the green knight yeah i wouldn't disagree with any of that um i think the green knight is a magnificent mesmerizing beautiful suffusive and dreamlike adult fantasy of choice, destiny, honour, and the making of myth. Um, Lately, I've been uh, developing an increased interest in the way cinema works um, as as, um, a modern myth-making, and when it takes an established myth, what can you do with it? And the answer is something pretty damn special. Um, There are so many moments in The Green Knight that just make you go, um, a point where, um, you know, there's a side of giants. These giants are walking through the landscape and you're not really sure why. And it sort of, it kind of recalls some of the great best moments of which there are many in, say, um, The Lord of the Rings, but with, a diff- but with an even more sort of fantastical um, element to them. It's, you are very much seeing, I think, things that you cannot understand. Um, but they still make a wonderful impression. Um, there's even a wonderfully meta-cinematic point where we see um, a character uses kind of a pinhole camera device. Um, of an actual, and this isn't um, you know, total um, fantasy construction. There is um, actual um, historical device being referenced here. So it's um, kind of meta-cinematic as well. And speaking of, uh, to tie it back to something we mentioned earlier, I want to see Dev Patel as James Bond. That is the role that he, I think, could um, have earned. Uh, Well, I think he would be magnificent in. So, yeah, my number six and then uh, Russell's number five, The Green Knight. James, have you seen The Green Knight um, or will you? I have not. It's one I have been eager to watch, but for some reason have not 
and I couldn't fit in before these final lists, so I shall eagerly watch it when I can, really. Fair enough. Uh, now, James, why don't you mention your... So we've done uh, Russell's number five. Uh, what's your number five? My number five is a film called Judas and the Black Messiah. Well, blow me down. That's my number five as well. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so tell us about Judas and the Black Messiah, please. Deputy Chairman Fred Hampton of the Illinois Black Panther Party. Repeat after me. Okay, so this film from co-writer and director, director Shaka King tells the real-life story of Fred Hampton, deputy chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party, and what would lead to his untimely demise. And this film is told through the perspective of Bill O'Neill, a man who is forced to become an FBI informative, informant and spy on Fred Hampton's activities, get close to him, and if he does not, then the FBI are going to fit him up for crimes and send him away. And what you have is this absolutely tense, engrossing and emotional look at the racial injustices which are per perpetuated by those in power. And it's brought alive by such masterful performances. I mean, this is the film which Daniel Kaluuya rightfully won an Oscar for. And... Oh, it's such a glorious film. Weird, weird that he got the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor, the same category his co-star Lakeith Stanfield was also nominated for, because I guess this film doesn't have a lead actor or something. <laughs> well, either that or it um, can be a matter of the studio putting forward um, performers in particular categories where they're more likely to win. And I suspect that the distributors of... Judas and the Black Messiah didn't want to compete against Anthony Hopkins and indeed Chadwick Boseman. And, mm. you know, they were right not to in that respect. So yeah, had out. Mr. Kaluuya been up in that category, he may well not have won. Well, thank goodness he did, because it's an exemplary, exemplary performance from such a wonderful British talent. Mm. Yeah, I am. Um, yeah, I concur. I think it, um, he does a master performance. So does Lakeith Stanfield. So does everyone, frankly. Um, I found a, a, a key. Another thing that I thought was um, key about Judas and the Black Messiah is how angry it is. This is an angry film. It's angry. It's ferocious and it's compelling and it's heartbreaking. But it's also nuanced and measured. I mean, it's not a it's not a ranting film. It's very precisely angry in the same way i think as the as fred hampton and the um you know the black panther party behind him are you know absolutely righteously indignantly angry and really trying to and identifying some genuine causes of social injustice and attempting to make changes i think it's a stunning historical drama it's about coercion it's about revolution it's about betrayal 
It's institutional oppression. You've got um, Martin Sheen playing um, J. Edgar Hoover. And that's a very, it's, it's always interesting when you have actors who are, have one particular association and then they are given another one because of Martin Sheen, well known for playing a somewhat liberal um, authority figure in the West Wing, but here playing an absolute, you know, um, J. Edgar Hoover is a controversial figure anyway, but in this respect, he is very much constituted as um, an absolute figure of oppression. He is the manifestation um, of institutionalized racism. Um, yeah, so, uh, but despite all that, despite being so heartbreaking, I still find Judas and the Black Messiah, I think a hopeful film, because um, it still speaks about this kind of, because, you know, here we are in 2021 and the kind of problems being identified talked about in that film are still present. And I think the very fact that a film like this exists, while I wish it didn't have a reason to, I'm also glad that it does because it does have a reason to, and therefore I am glad that it exists and that we can still have these conversations. So yeah, um, so from both uh, myself and James at number five, Judas and the Black Messiah. Russell, have you seen it? I have, and I agree with both of you what you're saying. I think it's a really impressive film. Uh, I'm really happy with who won the Oscar for it. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I think it's terrific. Uh, I will give a mention to Jesse Plowman's because he's fantastic in whatever he's in, and he's uh, there's some interesting stuff here of his character. He's a villain, but a conflicted villain. Uh, yeah, I, I think this is a wonderfully complicated film. As you say, it's angry and it's rightfully angry. Um, yeah, it, it only missed out my top ten because really, it's been quite a strong year for films. So, mm. yeah, this is this is a worthy inclusion in anyone's list. It's wonderful how Jesse Plemons has become one of t one of the best actors working today. And when he came onto the scene, Breaking Bad fans were weekly calling him Meth Damon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. His best performance is still in Game Night, though. As great as he is in all these classy dramas, in Game Night, he is an icon. There we That's go. True. <laughs> James, tell us about your number four. My number four is Minari. Has anyone else got this on their list? No. Oh. Just missed out. I In my overall further ranking, I think I put it in at number... 12 but uh it's not in the top 10 so this one's all yours wonderful david look they're wheels wheels look at this Minari is this warm and resonant tale about this Korean family who are trying to, who are now living in Arkansas. They're trying to get by as the father, played by Stephen Yun, builds this farm. And his hope is that he wants to make a better life for his family. He wants them to get their own farm running and get the money coming in from stuff they made themselves, not getting back alley jobs where they're having to. I believe it's called sexing chickens. Which, oh, yes. Yes. And what you've got is this heartfelt and gentle tale, which is just so wonderfully portrayed. And it is 
so exceptionally acted by Stephen Yun, who was rightfully um, nominated for Best Actor earlier this year. And it especially has just the most adorable performance by Alan Kim. And is such a lovely film which touched my heart. And I can't say that for many other films where um, women of age is made is tricked into drinking piss. So, so yeah, it's Minari for me. Yeah, yeah, I, I loved Minari as well. I only saw it a couple of weeks ago um, and I thought it was, um, you know, it was very touching. Um, it was heartwarming without being cloying. Mm. Um, it had a nice sort of a spikiness to it. And I loved that it was very much about, and I thought it was a great tale about the immigrant experience, which which is, in, in, you know, an inherently um, political topic, but it managed to do it. I mean, and it, it never did the things I sort of expected it to do, even though this mm. is a Korean family in Arkansas, um, you know, so it's technically surrounded by rednecks, um, but it doesn't ever feel like, it's not that movie, mm, which you exactly. think it might be. It's something quite different and I think quite special. Russell, um, you've seen Minari? I have, yeah. I saw it when it, I saw it in the cinema. It was a really compelling watch. Uh, you know, I, I agree with you all on this. I think Minari is worth everyone's time. Um, I think it's emotionally manipulative. I don't think in a bad way. I think that cinema is emotionally manipulative. And when it's done as well as this, it's I, I have to tip my hat to it that it, it kind of brought me into the story, brought me into their journey. And every time there was a new development, I felt myself getting teary. I could feel the film doing its work and I think it did it really well. Um, and some really great performances, some really touching, moving performances. Kind of sad that it, it got a bit lost in the Oscar shuffle, that mm. there were other films that got more attention than it did. But yeah, Minari is worth everyone's time. Uh, yeah, a lot of fun with it. Yes. Well, not fun. A lot of drama of it. <laughs> yeah. Plenty of uh, plenty to be um, uh, <clears throat> to feel positive about. Yes, I mean yeah. um, it didn't get totally lost at the Oscars. Um, Yoo Jung Yoon did win the Oscar and the, the BAFTA for supporting actress, so and very well deserved. Um, mm. Lovely. Okay, so that was uh, Minari. James's number four. Russell, how about you? Your number four. Uh, my number four is Summer of Soul, which I believe none of you have in your lists. Nope. So. Are you ready, black people? Yeah! Are, you ready? Are you really ready? Yeah! Are you ready to listen to all the beautiful black voices, the beautiful black feeling, the beautiful black waves moving in beautiful air? Are you ready, black people? Are you ready? Uh, Summer of Soul is a truly incredible documentary it's about the 1969 harlem cultural festival so it's the same year as woodstock i'd never heard of this festival i don't think it's that widely known outside of its point in history it kind of got lost in the mix but there's all this archive footage of these incredible performers of these soul and um funk and jazz performers of the late 60s and it's been restored and there's there's great interviews in this and so it has one of the best soundtracks of any film of the year. And it, it kind of subtly is talking about race in America at the time and how that kind of reflects back into now. Uh, yeah, I, I think Summer of Soul is really something special. I have listened to its soundtrack fairly often in the past year. 
since watching it um yeah it's it's one of those films that uh teaches you but in a way that's enjoyable it doesn't overplay its hand it's just a really great watch really interesting uh just really good fun well i i have not seen summer of soul so i cannot speak to it james no i have not seen it either but for the moment it's mark commode's um favorite film of the year so you're Ooh. in good company russell well i think he's just copying me if i'm honest but yes <laughs> it, it is it's really uh you kind of get washed up in it you kind of get uh lost in its kind of uh time it's creating all those amazing songs are being played uh, it's by quest love who uh yeah he went off and did this as a project i haven't watched too many of the uh kind of passion projects this year around music i haven't watched is it get back is that the beatles one that's like mm. 10 hours on an album or something absurd but this is like under two hours and just spot on just what i wanted and has kind of stayed with me since Oh, um, well, my number four is something that has been mentioned once already. But I'm not going to talk about it at length because it's going to have to wait till it comes up in someone else's list a little bit higher because my number four is, and frankly, a film I've spoken about at length already in a previous episode, Dune. But we will come back to Dune in so many ways. So let us move to our number three. James, what is your number three, please? Well, continuing on the theme of films which persevered at the past Oscars, my number three is Sound of Metal. Anybody else got this on the list? Nope. Oh, well, let me tell you. You sound great. Yeah, right. What? You're telling me you weren't feeling it? You were in it. We don't, need to, we don't need to put them all out. I know, but we have to take a film. Sound of Metal is this tale of this heavy metal drummer played by Riz Ahmed who finds himself losing his hearing. And he wants to get the hearing sorted. He wants to get back to his old life. But what he's taught to, he's taught to embrace it. And because it's quite serious, it's not like something just get hearing aids and it'll be sorted. It, so he learns to live in this deaf community and accumulate to this new way of living. And it's something which could have easily been a disease of the week style tale. But what co-writer and director Darius Marder does, he does such an exceptional job in this tale. It never feels less than authentic to the characters or to the community. It's something which feels tremendously representative to what our lead character's going through, capturing it through such exceptional sound design. And Riz Ahmed, he's been accumulating such a great filmography and this may be the best he's been yet. He is the drummer who just wants things to go back to the pa- as they were in the past. He's re- resistant to adapting to the challenges this new life will bring. And he's got Olivia Cook and Paul Racy uh, doing fantastic work as supporting characters, aiding his story in whatever way they can. It is such an exceptional film, which 
I wish I saw on the big screen because the sound design, it seems like something you need to experience in with Dolby sound system blasting it all around you. It's such a phenomenal film. And I really can't wait to see what Darius Marder does next. Um, have you guys seen this? Yep. I have. And Riz Ahmed is a phenomenal performer. Uh, when we were saying that Dev Patel should be Bond, I'd put Riz, Riz's name in the mix. I don't think he'd do it. It's not, doesn't feel quite his energy. But yeah, in this, he is phenomenal. Um, and yeah, I, again, I, one of those films I wish I'd seen in the cinema, I agree with you. It's probably why it's not in my 10 because I didn't see it in the cinema. So I kind of almost lost something by not seeing it there. But yeah, this is uh, Riz's best performance. And I say that in a career that has always been interesting. Maybe not Venom, but you know, apart from Venom, he's always good. Yeah, I thought Sound of Metal was superb. It was um, it was very close. I think it comes in like my number 13. <laughs> so unlucky 13, I guess, <laughs> for Sound of Metal. But in particular, because it was something that, thanks to its sound design, I felt really brought one into the character's experience. The great um, Roger Ebert said that cinema is a machine for generating empathy. And if you can create an experience of somebody, well, express the experience of somebody that is completely different to your own experience and you can empathize with that, then that is doing something super impressive. So yeah, absolutely a very fine choice there um, for your number three, James. Now, Russell, your number three, is something that has run wee, wee, wee from Russell's, uh, sorry, from James's um, uh, list into yours. Mm. My number three is Pig. And it, I assume it's not on your list, Vincent? I haven't actually seen it, so no, it isn't. Fabulous. Then I get to talk about Pig. Um... So on paper, Pig seemed like a film that I would, you know, be a bit bargain basement-y. So it's about a truffle hunter uh, played by Nicolas Cage who's tracking down his stolen pig. So you expect a sort of John Wick-esque affair where Nicolas Cage is taking names and being very cagey. And it's not that at all. This is not that film at all. It is, it is a film that shouldn't work, but works so wonderfully well. It's not really about the pig in the title. The pig in the title kind of has about 15 minutes at most on screen, leaves a wonderful impression, but then just is no longer present. Um, instead, it's this poignant, soulful exploration of love and the act of cooking for someone else and how cooking is the great act of love. It is the great act of connection between two humans. And... Uh, Nicolas Cage has never been better. I mean, I haven't seen all of his films. I don't really need to see all of his films, but he has never been better than he has in this film. He is wonderful. And I now expect so much more from him because even at this stage of his career, a very eclectic career that has gone through many, many stages, he is capable of perhaps the great performance of the year. He's quiet and uh, does so little, but does so much. Uh, yeah, Pig moved me in a way that I didn't think it would move me. I, yeah, I love Pig. I think more people should see Pig. I'm very hopeful that Nicholas gets some Oscar buzz, gets some Oscar love, because 
yeah, it is this incredible performance that I can't quite, um, can't quite put into words how good it is and how impressive it is. And also there's a phenomenal supporting term from Alex Wolf. Is it Alex Wolf? Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, hereditary yeah so he's in this and he's great in fact the entire cast is great the entire world that's created it's beautifully shot and constructed and um a quiet film in a way that you don't expect when you're told it's about truffle hunter trying to find his stolen pig but this is yeah pig is is incredible and for a while was my second favorite film of the year until i watched another film twice (laughs) (laughs) ah Yeah, I adore Pig. It's the film from premise, you expect some kind of revenge flick where Nick Cage is kicking ass and taking names in a way like Liam Neeson has been doing since 2008 or something. But no, what the writer-director Michael Sarnowski, in his debut, Jesus Christ, (laughs) he's crafted something so sombre and affecting and it details how grief can change a person. I think it's a wonderful companion piece to Nicolas Cage's other great performance of the past 10 years, Mandy. Although instead of getting a chainsaw fight, the film has more in common with Ratatouille than anything. And it's a fucking good performance for Cage. I have a sinking feeling he's going to get shut out of the Oscars. They're going to overlook this film. But he really deserves at least a nomination for this. He really, he doesn't go over the top as you, as probably some people would expect. In fact, there's probably one moment of cage rage, but it's so deserved in the scene. He just goes the whole hog for his performance. Boom, Tish. <laughs> well, okay, yeah. I mean, I'd heard very good things about Pig. I remember um, uh, Robbie Collin, um, critic for the, um, Telegraph, he spoke very highly of it and he just also said it was one of um, Nick Cage, certainly Nick Cage's best performance for a long time. Um, it's funny when we think about the dreck that Mr. Cage has uh, appeared in, we have a tendency to forget the man is an Oscar winner. <laughs> mm. um, you know, won back in 1995 for Leaving Las Vegas and was later nominated for Adaptation, which are two very different roles. And I imagine Pig is probably very different again. So mm. Yeah, sounds like it's a, uh, well, <clears throat> one wouldn't be being to Russia if one saw it. Oh, don't get hammy with this. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, shall we trot on? Uh, <laughs> to our, oh, uh, well, I know. <clears throat> well, let's move on then to our second pick. So I was about to say our number twos, but that, that sounds bad. Let's move on to our second picks. Um, Vincent, did you do your number three? I didn't, did I? Thank you. See, this is what happened. This is why we need to do this. is why we do this as an ensemble. So if uh, one person messes up, the other one will say, uh, dude, you missed something. My number three, which I only saw um, the other week, um, and a double bill, actually. Um, I had a double bill uh, the other week of Ghostbusters Afterlife, which was meh, and... West Side Story, which doesn't appear in anyone else's list. Tonight, 
And so I will now wax lyrical about a dazzling, dizzying, stunning, spectacular, moving and exhilarating cinematic bonanza of physical expression, human passion, evocative spaces, emotional lighting, entrancing music, racial tensions and social realism. Now, that is a heady mix. Uh, how does one marshal all of that material? Well, you don't get Rob Marshall to do it. Um, it's directed by this um, some up-and-comer called, um, I think it's um, Stefan Spergbeel, something like that. Um, oh, yeah, Van Soderbergh. Uh, could be, could be, yeah. Um, I think he's made um, some, he may have made some movies previously, possibly involving maybe a shark, maybe dinosaurs, aliens, possibly. Um, oh, Sharknado. Uh, maybe yeah. or a, or, or in some history teacher who's part time. Yeah, West Side Story is a film that I think many going into it, myself included, might have been apprehensive about um, because the 1961 version is pretty much perfect. Um, and I've so I mean I've seen the 61 version. I've also seen West Side Story on stage. Um, but I, it's always interesting to think about adaptations of stage shows because stage shows get reinterpreted, remade, restaged all the time. So it kind of stands to reason that they will lend themselves to a new cinematic interpretation. And I can genuinely say that West Side Story 2021 is, while it is a period piece, it's still set in the 1950s, it has, um, it has very modern sensibilities. Um, it has these racial tensions and it has this real sense of social realism. Going back to the film Candyman I mentioned earlier, it has concerns over gentrification and um, urban redevelopment um, and the tensions between these different groups. Um, and it is, I think, and it's pleasantly racially diverse. You've got um, a Puerto Rican cast um, who are, um, cast of characters um, who are of, um, who are very diverse and um, you know actually speak Spanish um, in a way that is interestingly not subtitled, but nonetheless it's you you still know what they're talking about because everyone is so physically expressive because hey they're dancers and this is a film where not only do the characters dance dazzlingly but the film itself is a dance. Um, the camera sweeps, it um, thrusts through these spaces, it glides. Sometimes we've got these lovely long takes. I am a sucker for a long take, um, a long take that enables you to see the dizzying dances taking place. Whereas at other times it's cutting quickly um, to take you around the different um, angles of an area when it may be a dance or it may be a fight, which let's face it, on screen, they can look pretty similar. Um, and, you know, if you know the story of uh, West Side, if you know West Side Story, you know it's heartbreaking. It's Romeo and Juliet, in effect. So it's not going to end well. Maybe that's a spoiler for something that's been around for over 60 years. Whatever. I think you can spoil it at this point if there's yeah, multiple I think film so versions. Too. So and, it's yeah. got a, yeah, it, it is a tragedy. But it, and it, despite that, it works in the best types of tragedy. You know what's coming and it still hits you like a massive gut punch. Um, yeah, I was... I had reasonably high hopes for West Side Story, um, but they were blown away. I didn't think I would like it as much as I did, and I adored it. Yeah. My number three, West Side Story. Have either of you seen it? I have not. I have not even seen the original, so 
I've got some catching up to do. Okay. I have not. I, I was going to go see it and then I ended up having to isolate for a period of time. So I'm probably going to go watch it this weekend because uh, on my other podcast, we are doing West Side Story at some point early next year. So uh, the, the 60s one, not this one. Yeah. So it would be prudent to go watch it. Plus it's Spielberg. I have, yeah, I think Spielberg is a great director and uh, I love Sondheim's work. I, I know it's other people involved, but it, in my head, it's a Sondheim musical. Um, yeah, no, you've just made me want to see it even more. Well, I hope I haven't built it up too much. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, now it's then. West Side Story. It's got to be pretty built up. It's, That's it's true. Cool. Yeah, built up and then possibly demolished and rebuilt. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that was my number three. Now we come to our second picks, which there is an overlap here for two of us, uh, which was mentioned earlier on. So mm. Russell earlier mentioned uh, Russell's number eight also comes in for James and myself at number two. James, what is our number two? My number two is Promising Young Woman. Oh, it's mine as well. Fancy that. Ah. <laughs> Russell, you mentioned it earlier. Why don't you start um, with your views on Promising Young Woman? Whisper something. Good God almighty. You know, they put themselves in danger, girls like that. It was a perverted thing to say. You'd think you'd learn by that age, right? Please lay down. What are you doing? It's okay, you're safe. What are you doing? Hey, I said, what are you doing? So Promising Young Woman is, for me, the angriest film I saw this year. In a film that has some angry films, like Candyman is pretty pretty ferocious in its rage, as is Judas and the Black Messiah. But Promising Young Woman is righteously so an angry film. I think it is... Uh, I think it's one of the most difficult films I've watched this year um, because I can see so much of the men that I know and occasionally myself in some of the characters, which is uncomfortable and it does it well. The script is one of the best scripts of the year. Carrie Mulligan is, I thought Francis McDormand was phenomenal in Nomadland, but I was rooting for Carrie on the night because I think it's her greatest performance and it kind of reaches something new from the performer, a really great performer, but in this she's even better. Um, I, I think it's a really impressive, affecting film. I had to let it sit with me because of how uncomfortable I felt at times watching it. Um, and it has sat with me and it's probably got better since I have given it some distance. Even an ending that I have... I think the ending is slightly too neat for me. I kind of wish it had the original ending that when it was first written, which ends at a particular point and they add a coda on um but even looking back on it i think you need the code i think we need um a sense of justice at the end uh yeah i think it's it's great work i can understand why you guys have put it as your second favorite film of the year so which one of you two wants to bask even more in its glory uh, james you go first okay um what i think emerald fennel does really well is crafts this bubblegum aesthetic with a very poppy soundtrack 
in such dark subject matter. And you've got this pitch black tale of revenge, which just had takes no prisoners in its critique of rape culture. And it's so enthralling from beginning to unforgettable end. And Carrie Mulligan is absolutely excellent. Uh, I would I was rooting for it as well come Oscar night because what a powerhouse performance. And I think in regards to the ending, no spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen it, I'm reminded of what Jordan Peele said about his chosen ending for Get Out in that he wanted to, he had an original ending in mind, which is, I'd say, very, can be very triggering to some people. But there was, let's say, a, a change because essentially you're there to watch a movie. You want the catharsis while also getting the unforgettable reality of what comes in, what unfortunately comes. And I think it what Emerald Fennell does is just amazing and it just left me gobsmacked and maybe we're not the right people to talk about this woman this film being three white men but i just think it's excellent um vincent you've also got as your number two might i suggest that controversially you also like it <laughs> yeah well yes shockingly i do i am a huge fan of promising young woman in fact it was touch and go as to whether this was going to be my um, number one, my film of the year. Um, it was just pipped to the post for, well, for something we'll come on to in a minute. Um, but yeah, I agree with everything you guys have said. Um, Promising Young Woman is a shrewd, brutal, darkly comic, pastel-coloured truth missile to the vile heart of privileged, toxic masculinity and the line between justice and revenge. And... Yeah, I think I concur with what you said, Russell. Um, it is a discomforting watch. And I think while it's, yes, it is perhaps problematic that here we are, three white, straight white guys talking about um, this film, which is very much about, you know, it's very much a woman's film. It is by women. It is about women. Um, but it, um, I recognise the attitudes of the men being presented here Um you know, I, I could say, oh, yeah, that's I would probably think that was OK. And oh, God, no, it isn't. And there's, again, the empathy machine. It's presenting something which needs to be presented so that we can look at it and go. Oh, yes, this is a this is what I mean by privileged, um, toxic masculinity and also um, complicity, because it's notable that what we see over the course of Promising Young Woman it isn't just men. There are women who are also made complicit in um, some uh, very damaging attitudes and behaviours. Um, and and it is, yes, I mean, certainly Kerry Mulligan and indeed everybody in it is um, superb. Um, I do take my hat off, actually, I think, to a lot of the um, male performers who are playing nice guy characters and in doing so exposing the 
dark truth behind the nice guy persona. Um, I think that's um, you know a really smart move on the part of um, Emerald Fennell in casting performers like um, Bo Burnham and Christopher Mintz-Plasse. Um, but what I think stands out to me most is just how um, acerbically confident Emerald Fennell's direction is. I think I love this film right from its opening credits where we get a female gaze. We get the female gaze of looking at men dancing in slow motion in a way that makes the men look grotesque. And you know what? By the end of that, well, not even by the end of the movie, quite quickly into the movie, you realise, God, yeah, men are grotesque. And <laughs> well done to the film for being able to present that grotesquerie um, without... Uh, well, well, we're with the right kind of nuance, the right kind of balance, the right kind of nous. I think it's a masterful piece of work. Um, and as I said, it was very close to being my um, top film of the year. But before we get to my film of the year, and indeed yours, let's hear about Russell's number two film, which was also my number four and James's number eight. So we all liked it, but it seems Russell liked it the most. <laughs> uh, so my number two is, we in fact talked about it last episode. It is Dune. My planet Arrakis is so beautiful when the sun is low. Rolling over the sands, you can see spice in the air. The outsiders ravage our lands in front of our eyes. And uh, for a time, it wasn't my second favorite film. It was it was in my top five, but it was it was not as high up. But I went off and watched it again, and it all sort of coalesced into this film that I think is now a masterpiece. It's a cinema of scope and scale, the likes of which I have missed, that is captured better than any other film this year, I feel. It has a phenomenal cast. It has Hans Zimmer's transcendent musical score. Has Greg Fraser's wonderful capturing of the of the spectacular visitors of the film settings, and gives me great hope for the Batman because he is the cinematographer on that. I think Dune is a remarkable achievement that more than any film this year, more than all of the many delayed films, both lived up to the hype that it had upon it because. We've been talking about this film for what seemed like two, three, four years now. And it is perhaps the best argument for the continued existence of cinemas because as great as I'm sure Dune is at home, in a cinema, it takes you to a place that very few films can and it does it in a way that is just remarkable. Uh, yeah, I think it is a phenomenal achievement, a film that I was not expecting a great deal from, and that's my folly. Uh, yeah, it's, it, I can't stress enough how wonderful I think Dune is. I think we all think it's pretty fantastic, if, if no matter where we place on our lists. Uh, and it is, for me, the best blockbuster in years. I can't remember the last blockbuster that made me feel something like this. Uh, and I am very eager for the sequel. Hmm. Oh, and I yeah. wish I'd seen it in the IMAX. I wish I'd found the time, I wish it'd been in IMAX for slightly longer, it kind of only stayed for two weeks in IMAX, so 
yeah yeah i mean it's interesting what you say russell about the um you say it's your folly but i wonder if because you didn't have particularly high expectations maybe that made the experience all the better for you um i mean i spoke at length about dune uh, last time so i'll just say briefly um you know it's an in, it's intense it's stunning it's an overload um it's uh, got truly epic storytelling and it's a perfect balance um between the grand and the intimate um the internal and the external um yeah it is a perfectly rendered um story and i am so eager for dune part two as well james what would you say about dune well since we last spoke i went and saw the film again thankfully without chattering teenagers <laughs> and it's really a wonderful film i mean i wish more films transported me and swept me along the way this film made me feel i was in arrakis or watching the so darker doing the throat singing and their rainy dark planet i was just as enthralled to see the political wranglings in this fantastic realm as I was the sandworms in all their mighty glory. I cannot wait for the sequel and to return to the tragedy and thrills of this world, especially if Hans Zimmer, Hans Zimmer does such a good job with the score again. I, it's such a phenomenal, phenomenal film. And that's only at my end number eight is just testament to how many damn good films that have been this year. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I certainly struggled to put together this list. And I'm like, God, there are a lot of movies I've seen this year that I was rating at five stars. Now, speaking of that, we have now come to the top spots. And if I may, gentlemen, I will um, discuss my number one film first, because then I think you two can very much play off each other for your uh, number one. <laughs> So my number one film, which just edged ahead of Promising Young Woman, um, is, I am happy to say, another film from a female director. Um, my personal top 10 includes Nomadland, Candyman, Promising Young Woman, all directed by women, and my number one top film of the year, Censor, by Prano Bailey Bond. This depiction is dangerous. Come on, Enid. I'm cutting it. A debut feature film. Um, she had made short films before, but this was her feature debut, and it is such a confident, powerful piece of work. Sensor is a dourly designed, de-sentimentalised, critically nostalgic and utterly mesmerising gaze into representation, trauma and the fracturing of perception. And it's set against a stunning backdrop of media scapegoating and societal violence. Um, for those who don't know, Censor is set um, in the early 1980s during the video Nasties scare. And uh, Neve Algarve uh, plays Enid, a censor working at the British Board of Film Censorship as it was at the time. And her work, um, starts to resonate with her own childhood trauma and she realizes that and the lines between uh, reality and fantasy and fiction start to break down 
Um, as I say, it's uh, the design of the film is excellent. It um, very much looks like a dingy portrayal of the 1980s. And that's why I call it desentimentalized. For the last decade, there's been so much um, glowing nostalgia about the 1980s saying, oh, wasn't the 80s great? And it was, hang about, the 1980s was shit. It was horrible. <laughs> I say this as somebody who was a kid in the 80s. And I had, it was a, I had a shitty time too. Um, it was, there were so many social and political and cultural um, struggles and uh, battles going on at this time. And the video nasties is the perfect encapsulation of that. And that's also why I call this a film that is critically nostalgic. It's looking back at this time that has a certain um, appeal, but it's saying, well, you know, it wasn't all great. There are some bad things going on here. And as I say, it's a very confident um, first um, debut feature. Prano Bailey Bond, she knows how to hold the camera just the right amount of time and how to utilize um, things like the aspect ratio um, and the moving the camera at times as though it looks like it's moving through screens to really bring you into this fractured world. Um, and you know what? This is a, it is a horror film um, and it is, a, it is a psychological horror film and there is few things more terrifying than the sense of one's own mind starting a fracture. And that's what we see. Um, yeah, my film of the year, Sensor, which I had, I will say, I had the particular privilege of seeing twice in the space of a week, including a the second time being a screening at Fright Fest, where uh, the writer-director, Prano Bailey Bond, uh, was doing a commentary over the film and explaining how aspects of it worked. But I will clarify, I loved this film just from watching it normally. And I may well go and watch it again quite soon. Did you guys see Sensor? And uh, if, you, if not liking it as much as me, think uh, of it positively. Uh, yeah, I think that the stuff that I liked about Sensor was this uh, impressive mise-en-scene and world building of the 80s. It feels a more effective recreation of the 80s than some other uh, more nostalgic uh, representations of it. I could have happily have had a sitcom in this world or a drama comedy thing following the censors in that office because I thought that they were a terrifically interesting bunch. I guess my, uh, I think it's really good, but I also think that the last act is slightly rushed in the same way that I think the Candyman final act feels slightly rushed to me. That I think that the world building of these films is what most interests me as opposed to the uh, conclusion of their stories. Um, but yeah, there's so much that I think is impressive about Sensor. I can see why it's your film of the year because there's a lot to admire about it and like about it. Oh, and Michael Smiley's in it, so it's always worth your time. <laughs> Whereas I have not seen Sensor. Have I sold it to you? Well, yeah, I was very interested in it already. It definitely seemed like a killer premise, but your words have encouraged me to check out before the year is over. And I really look forward to seeing it. I mean, it's it seems sounds like a one hell of an idea and i really can't wait to see how it translates on screen mm -hmm. well if you sign up for like a seven day trial or 30 day trial of movie it's available on there but maybe you've done that previously 
Hey, movie, movie, give us sponsorship. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, so let us now come to your number one pick, gentlemen. Mm. James, because... would you like to go first? Yes, go ahead. Um, my number one pick is a Netflix film called The Mitchells versus the Machines. And my number one pick is a Netflix film called The Mitchells versus the Machines. Oh my oh, god, it's like we planned this. <laughs> <laughs> I have not seen The Mitchells versus the Machines, so I'm going to sit this one out. Over to you. Russell, would you do the honors? Oh, well, okay. Let it begin. The last humans must be here somewhere. Wait. They're coming. Is that a burnt orange 1993 station wagon? So I have seen this film five or six times, I would say. It's one of those films that I've watched multiple times. When you have children, you watch films on repeat fairly often. <laughs> But this is a film that came straight to Netflix and stole my heart from the instant I watched it. It is a predominantly 3D animated film that mixes in 2D styling to give it an anarchic quality that reminds you of some of the best of recent years. It's the same studio that did in Spider-Verse, so you get a sense that it's kind of willing to push what a 3D animation can do. Ah, oh, there's so much I love about this film. It has this incredible script, this wonderful cast of characters and every voice actor is doing incredible work here um and it has a characters that are going on journeys that feel affecting and real and um speaking to stuff about today that in a way that uh, some of animations can't quite achieve and there's something that disney keep doing which is they keep having a certain type of character hinted at but not really embrace it's sort of it's all every time they have like their first gay character and in fact it's just that they in passing mention they have a wife and that's it that's as far as they go because they can cut it out and that's not the case here um there are so many sequences i love in this film there's so much that i i feel such warmth this film it, it fits within my wheelhouse because i run a podcast about family films so my favorite of the year was probably always going to be a family film and this is the one and this is the only film of the year that has a giant Furby rampaging through a mall, which is still the best scene I've seen this year. I've seen a lot of films and that is my favorite scene of the year. And there've been many great scenes and many great sequences, but none have been as, as funny, as playful, as, as kind of terrifying as the idea of a giant Furby and it's little Furby, Furby friends Seeing it awake and it rampages through its yeah. The Mitchell's versus machine is is wonderful. Oh, I cannot agree more than what you've said. I mean, the Furby scene alone is one of the greatest things to be put onto film over this past year. Um, what I think they do so well is deliver this uh, relatable tale about the importance about finding your own place in the world, finding the people you call your own, who you share interests with, while not leaving behind those who love you. And while telling all this, it, it delivers this story about 
a robot uprising. And it delivers such heartwarming and relatable content within such a more fantastical premise, a more fantastical setting. And it's got such wonderfully vibrant animation and glorious spectacle, genuine laughs, heartfelt emotion. It will have you questioning if there's much difference between a pug and a loaf of bread. And as somebody who never cared for the T.I. and Rihanna song, Live Your Life, this film got me to absolutely adore its inclusion. It's my number one pick, and I would recommend you all go watch it on Netflix or get the Blu-ray from HMV or whatever. Just definitely see this film. It's wonderful. I have a long train journey tomorrow. Maybe I'll download um, the Mitchells versus the Machines and watch it on the train. I'd recommend it. It's an option. Now then, so ladies and gentlemen, you have now heard our individual top tens and we've talked about each film um, at some length. But there remains to be found out what is the collective view of the potty people for after all as potty people we are a hive mind are we not good in order to ascertain um the potty people's top 10 films of 2021 i tabulated our respective top 10s into three columns and assigned 10 points for each person's number one nine for the number two and so on now this led to some fascinating results um, including a three-way tie in the num for uh, in the at the bottom of the list, and of course we say bottom. This is we we loved every film that we've spoken about. Yeah, this is not about bad. I realise we haven't actually talked about what were our worst films of the year, and maybe we won't. Let's keep things positive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, fair bit of overlap. Um, as some appearances that two of us, some films that two of us ranked and several that all three of us had. Thus, the aggregated Potty People top 10 films of 2021 are, well, there is no number nine or 10 because in joint eighth place, three-way tie, we have another round, Sound of Metal and West Side Story. In seventh place, we have Vincent's number one, Sensor. In sixth place, which was also my sixth top sixth favorite, is The Green Knight. At number five, joint fifth, the joint uh, fifth favorite film for both my, Vincent and James, fifth is Judas and the Black Messiah. At number four, it's Pig. <laughs> And number three, perhaps unsurprisingly, because we've all waxed lyrical about it, it's Dune. And number two, it's James and Russell's number one, The Mitchells versus The Machine, which means that The Potty People's number one film of 2021 is, drumroll, promising a young a woman. Hey! Woo! 
So uh, congratulations to Emerald Finnell and Kerry Mulligan and Connie Britton and Bo Burnham and everyone involved for winning, let's face it, the most prestigious award of the film year. That's what um, they've all been going for. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Screw they, the Oscars, this is where it's at. Damn straight. So the pod award for best film, we should get a design for that, patent pending, <laughs> is indeed Promising Young Woman. So just run that list again in joint uh, eighth place, another round, West Side Story and Sound of Metal. Seven, Censor. Six, The Green Knight. Five, Judas and the Black Messiah. Four, Pig. Three, Dune. Two, The Mitchells versus the Machine. And number one, Promising Young Woman. Well, what can I say, gentlemen? That was one heck of a ride through <laughs> our top films of the past 12 months. Um, I found, yeah, that was, uh, that was very exciting. Mm. And at the end, 10 films that everyone should go off and watch and catch up with immediately. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I need to see out of those Pig and the Mitchells um, versus the Machines. And, well, yeah. And uh, I think, uh, James, what were the ones in there that you need to see? West Side Story? Um, West Side Story, Censor, Nomadland. Um, I'm sure there was more, but those are the... Oh, The Green Knight as well. Those are the main ones I definitely need to see, but always some recommendations. What about you, Russell? What do you need to see? I think it's just West Side Story, which I will be doing before the end of the year. I will be going off and watching that because, you know, Spielberg, Sondheim, it, it has to be pretty darn good, doesn't it? Mm. Those two combining. Mm. Oh, and I also need to see another round. So, yeah, I'm actually the, uh, the most efficient out of our top ten. Three of them I haven't seen. <laughs> I hang my head in shame. Now, before we go, shall we give some recommendations? James, you're going to lead us on as we each give a recommendation each before the end of the year, what we should be excited for in the touch wood coming out in 2022. Yes, we don't know what 2022 holds. We don't know how many of these films we're actually going to be able to see next year. But fingers crossed, we are going to be able to sit in the cinemas and have such wonderful reactions to these films each of us are going to recommend. Now, my choice is uh, the sequel to my fit to one of the best animated films of the past decade. It is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, part one. And when Into the Spider-Verse was such a magnificent surprise, and for my money, the all-time best Spider-Man film released, a sequel is immediately on my radar, but that short trailer they released not that long ago was such a fun, wonderfully coloured, vibrant little surprise that I cannot wait to see what's going to come about from this re- from this um, sequel where Lord and Miller are back writing on the screenplay and we've got a trio of new directors to helm it. So we got Justin K. Thompson in his directorial debut, Joaquin Dos Santos, whose career includes directing episodes of Justice League Unlimited and Avatar The Last Airbender, two really damn good animated shows worth seeking out. And the last director is Kemp Powers, who wrote One Night in Miami and co-directed Pixar's Soul. So quite an interesting bunch. And apparently the first two-part animated film made so this is going to be such a fun surprise. 
I'm very interested to see what they have that has such such a mar- large story that they had split into two parts. And let's be honest, we all want to see Spider-Ham back. So hopefully that little <laughs> piggy will come back home. And um, Vincent, what's your so what's your top pick for 2022? Well, my top pick for 2022 is a display of great optimism. So we're being optimistic that we're going to get to see these films in general. But my most anticipated film of 2022 was originally scheduled for release in 2014. So eight (laughs) years is quite long enough to wait. Thank you very much. Now, Russell and I have um, on his other podcast talked about Titanic, which features the line, are you ready to go back to Titanic? I am ready to go back to Pandora because my pick is Avatar 2. I adored Avatar back in 2009. I said it then and I'll say it again. It is a transcendent and awe-inspiring piece of cinematic art. One of very few films I would describe as loving on an emotional, intellectual and spiritual level. And... Avatar's one of them. I've heard the criticisms, they're fine. All views are available. But for me, Avatar is special and I wanna go back to Pandora, damn it. Now, (laughs) waiting for technological developments, purchases of studios and a small matter of the pandemic slowed production. But I choose to believe that it will arrive next year. Now, is this gonna be a hit like the first was? I suspect probably not because the marketplace has changed. Avatar did not make a cultural imprint comparable to the franchises that have dominated the past decade, the MCU, the DCEU, the return of Star Wars, even Transformers and the Fast and the Furious. These are surefire hits. Avatar did have impact, but in different ways, such as 3D and digital projection, performance capture, and its adoption by activist groups. Now, I'd be pleasantly surprised if audiences flock to Avatar 2 as they did to the first one, but I suspect rather it will be a modest success rather than a record breaker. And hopefully that won't prevent further sequels because I want to keep going back to Pandora, damn it. Russell, what are you looking forward to? Well, there's one film I have to pick. It is the hero that is closest to my heart. It is, of course, The Batman. And now we were meant to get The Batman, I think, this year, maybe even last year. Uh, But, you know, one thing and another has (laughs) meant that it is touch wood. Fingers crossed coming out next March. I mean, I think it's going to get pushed, but I think we'll see it some point next year. Now, I love Batman. I love most iterations of Batman. I even have a space for occasionally George Clooney's take on Batman, which is not a good <laughs> take, but sometimes you want bat nipples. But this one, this looks phenomenal. The two trailers that have come out have been two of the best films of their respective years. The first one is, is, is incredible because they've been filming for like two weeks and they put together all the footage into a phenomenal trailer. I long to watch a film not where Batman is fighting gods and monsters and being some other dimensions, but is just fighting criminals in Gotham. And that's what this is promising. It's by Matt Reeves, who is a fairly great director. He did Cloverfield, 
which I always have a lot of time for. It's a really fun film. And he did the uh, two and three in the last Planet of the Apes trilogy. So he is someone very capable at doing big blockbuster spectacle and marrying it with some interesting story. And this is a cast that just, if I read them off, there's so much talent, talent in this film. There's John Turturro, there is Jeffrey Wright, there's Paul Dano. And if you're not listening to Is Paul Dano Okay? Do listen to that. They are very excited for this film. There's Zoe Kravitz, there's Andy Serkis, there's Barry Cogan, there's Peter Sarsgaard, there's Colin Farrell in some very uh, interesting uh, makeup as the Penguin. And then in the cowl itself is Robert Patterson, who is one of the most interesting actors, even if he was in the Twilight films. I could not be more excited for this film. I just want it to get released so I can watch it. I just want to wallow in this world. I love The Dark Knight, and I think he's one of the most interesting screen figures. And yeah, this film has such promise and such potential and could be a very great thing. It's, I'll be honest, it's the only film that I'm really willing to go off to a midnight screening for, and I probably will do. So of the several films I'm very excited for in 2022, the one film that I want to see more than any other is The Batman. I remember reading a tweet um, shortly after the second trailer came out for The Batman, saying that if you are eagerly anticipating the Batman, know that I am judging you for being so excited about um, a film that valorizes a billionaire, a white male billionaire, um, being the source of salvation. I thought about making some snarky response to that. I say snarky, by which I mean, you know, critical and um, snooty, like the, uh, uh, like, like the, well, like the snooty git I am. Um, but I didn't. I thought, well, you know, people want to have their negative opinions. They're going to have negative opinions. And what's the point in getting into that sort of argument? Um, but I do think, and it's, you know, it's a valid point. Um, but I think the thing to always consider is, does Batman, the very myth of the Batman, um, present, say, yes, wealthy white men are the solution to all problems, do tend to overlook that, Batman is so fucked up. <laughs> and I like yeah. that this new version, based on the trailers at least, which, you know, can be misleading, but let's uh, give him the benefit of the doubt, is embracing that. Because the point in the trailer where Batman starts beating up this guy and he keeps hitting him, and we know this is someone who is messed up. And then what does he say? We're expecting him to say, I'm Batman, but no, I'm vengeance. Yeah. Whereas I saw a tweet saying Robert Pattinson is the worst vampire because it took him over 10 years to turn into a bat. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, that tweet has won the internet. <laughs> the hell are you supposed to be? So there you have it. Another Poddy People episode is drawing to a close. We've given you stuff you should go off and watch and listen to. We've gone through the films we've loved this year, and we've even been optimistic and said that some great films will come out next year. And 
Touch wood again. The films we want to come out will come out. We can will this into happening. We've had so many films that I didn't think existed because they'd been delayed for so long have come out this year. We've had new Halloweens, Dunes, Bonds. All of them have been released. So maybe, just maybe, we'll get what we want next year. Um, but on that note, we're going to leave you. Guys, where can people find you? James, where can people go off and find your stuff? Well, I'm over at Twitter and Letterboxd at RoddersJ04. That's two Ds. And you can find my reviews, podcasts, appearances, articles, whatever, at thereviewingrodders.co.uk. So, yeah, check that out and have a good Christmas at or whatever holidays you celebrate and a fantastic new year. Vincent, where can people find you? Well, people could find me possibly on Pandora, possibly in Gotham, or maybe um, convincing people that censoring films is a bad idea. Um, and you can find me putting forward my perspectives on uh, film and uh, television and politics and all manners um, on Twitter and Letterboxd at Dr. Gain. That's D-R-G-A-I-N-E, um, where I give my views. And you can also find my reviews on um, the on <coughs> Snakebite Reviews and the Critical Movie Critics. Russell, well, if I wanted to um, sort of put you, put a ranking of my Russells, where would I be able to get the necessary criteria to put you into my ranking? <laughs> uh, you can find me, well, you can find me warbling on about films, family films and films that I kind of, you know, squash into that mould at the Not Just For Kids podcast, which is my main outlet of fun right now. We've just done four episodes on Christmas, so you can listen to us talk about Die Hard, Jingle All The Way, Elf, Klaus, It's A Wonderful Life, Miracle on 34th Street, and a triple bill of The Grinch. It was a lot of fun to do. And then in the new year, there'll be some even more fun stuff. There's a fun little project that I need to organise myself to do, but you know, you two guys are going to come on and talk about some films, and then we're going to get into musicals. And hey. I'm also on Twitter as Russ Loves Movies. That's where you'll see me retweet anything that I write and get posted anywhere, anything I review, and any other thing I want to put out into the world I put there. I don't think I'd be uh, the best Russell, but I'd be, you know, better than some Russells. <laughs> I guess it would depend on whether or not I included Kurt Russell. Who, let's face it, it's pretty hard to compete with. Kurt Russell is the best Russell. You'd definitely be above Russell Brand. Don't worry. Oh, thank you. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd agree. Yeah. I'd agree with that. And Russell Crowe. Well, I don't know. I mean, is it Russell Crowe Crow and Gladiator? Because he's pretty darn great in that. And then when no, bit, Russell you know. Crowe and the Mummy. That's just mean. No, I mean well, you're above not singing. Brand, that Russell Crowe. No, I mean, just mentioning that and reminding us about it is mean. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, this has been us. Go off and find us online, not in person. We don't really want people near us too much right now. It's a bit of an odd time, but we all think you're fabulous and we thank you for listening. And there's so much you can watch over this coming Christmas holiday. So please do watch a lot of films and come back next month for even more Body People fun. Bye-bye, all. Bye-bye. Take care.